0: I want to talk to you about communion but I want to start with this because we're gonna go a little bit deeper on communion than than just what the sacrament is so there was a little town in Germany sometime around the 15th century if you've been to Europe you know that every town of any size at all has a large church in it usually right in the middle and they were putting up this cathedral and it was fairly tall and one of the workers fell off the roof as they were building the roof. And so all the other workers scrambled down, were sure that uh, he wasn't wasn't going to be able to survive a fall that far. And so they were ready to go down and collect the remains of their friend. And when they got there, they found out that he was alive. He was, well, he was sitting up. He had landed on a lamb, a lamb that was grazing in in the field just next to the church. So the lamb was dead, the lamb was crushed, and he had been saved. So I'll tell you what he did to, to remember that event in his life in a little bit. But just keep that in mind as we talk about what is communion. Because I think it's easy to, to confuse the sacrament, this observance that we do once a month here, with what the deeper meaning of communion is, what it represents. And, and what, what it is supposed to represent is our communion with Christ, our relationship with him what it looks like and how, how does that play out in our daily life. I thought it might be helpful to look up a definition of communion so I looked it up in Webster's and here's what Webster says communion means. It means intimate fellowship or rapport. Now when we talk about communion uh, it's kind of hard for us to disassociate the word communion from the sacrament but I'm going to ask you to try and do that for a few minutes because when we talk about communion this morning we're going to talk about that intimate relationship and rapport that we have with our lord jesus christ scripture tells us that when we're saved we enter into a new relationship with him and we enter into a union with him and so in that union when we communicate with christ in whatever fashion it is when we demonstrate his presence in our lives that is also communion a a deeper intimate Type of communication. So uh, I want to expand the definition a little bit and I want to call it the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. And we're talking about the spiritual level of intimacy with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you have confessed your sins, if you've repented and turned away from them, and towards the righteousness of Christ, you are in union with Christ. You might not feel that way this morning. Maybe you've had a rough week. And I, you know, I got to tell you, I've struggled with this. You know, you know why we have flip-flop Sunday, don't you? I have gout. I can't put my shoe on. So I was explaining this to a few people, Patrick and my wife, and they both kind of came up with the idea. They said, well, why don't you have flip-flop Sunday and we'll all wear flip-flops. I said, that's a great idea because I can't wear shoes. So I struggle from time to time, and my struggle can can distract me from the union that I have with Christ. As a matter of fact, there are times when all of us don't feel united with Christ, but Scripture tells us that we have that union. And because we have that union, we can communicate on an intimate level with him because we're one. With that in mind, I want to talk about what communion with Christ is. What does it mean when we say that we can commune with Christ above and beyond this sacrament? So I've got, I've got 12 points, 13 all in all. Those of you that have been here for a while are just going, oh no, he's got 13 points. He usually has three. Are we going to be here till 6 o'clock tonight? Yes. So we'll be serving dinner sometime around 3. No, I promise to I promise we'll get through it quickly. Communion with Christ, the first thing it is, it's a, it's a memorial to the grace that has redeemed us. Every time we encounter Christ, every time we think about Christ, we need to remember that the, the, the way we encounter him, the, the mere thought that we have of him comes as a result of the grace that God has shed upon us. It causes us to look back on that sacrifice, look back on the meaning of our redemption, and to, to ponder the magnitude of the grace that would put you and me in union with the creator of the world, with the one who spoke all this into existence. He's provided a way, he's provided a path to be one with him, to be one with his Son. And that happens. We know that happens by grace. It's not by anything we've done. It's by what he's done, and it happens because he's God, not because of who we are. So we receive that incredible gift that allows us to be in communion with Christ through the grace of God. As we ponder that, number two, communion with Christ is a reminder of his death. So even as we ponder the grace, we have to understand that the only way the grace was shed upon us is through the death of Christ. Christ allowed himself to be tortured, allowed himself to be beaten, he laid down on the cross, he allowed them to pound nails into his hands and a nail into his feet and raise him up on that cross he could have rescued himself at any time. He could have called down 10,000 legions of angels. He allowed all of that to happen so that we could enter into this union. He didn't have to do it. He did it because, because it was God's plan of redemption for us. And after he did that, he went through all that, and then he rendered his spirit up to the Father in heaven and showed us that in his final breath, he trusts his Father. He wanted to go through all of that pain and all of that agony because he trusted his Father implicitly. He had to die in order for us to have the communion. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. I love that because you there is plural. And I think if we were honest with each other, we would say that there can be a little bit of anonymity in being part of a large group of people. Amen? So he died for us. We also have to understand that this body that he died for is made up of individuals. He died for you and you and you and you and you and for me. So he went through that so that we could be part of the body. We remember his grace. We remember his, his death. Now, if we got to have that in mind, then we understand that communion with Christ causes a thanksgiving feast. Now, we can relate this to the sacrament. Yes, that's true. But every time we come together, we should experience a feast of thanksgiving. You know, if we were high church, we would celebrate not communion, we would ce- celebrate the Eucharist. Well, the, you know, it's, that's Latin for giving thanks, for thanksgiving. So when we come together and we understand that we come together by grace and we understand together that we come together by his sacrifice of himself, we should give thanks. We should do it collectively. We should do it individually. And so the corporate gathering begins to take on a little bit of a different nature. We come in here regardless of what the week looks like, regardless of what we've gone through, regardless of who's hurt us or who's offended us or or what our personal situations are. We come together to give thanks because we have this eternal perspective. We have this home that we have assured us in heaven and that whatever we're going through right now is temporary. It's not going to last forever. So we give thanks, and that's why we sing. It's why we sometimes we clap our hands if we're getting really radical. That's <laughs> why we, we read these scriptures. We, we experience this as a body because one day we're all going to stand in front of the throne in heaven as one person united with Christ before our Father in heaven. It's a feast every time we get together, a Thanksgiving feast. Now, I like that because our next point is that Communion with Christ is like a family meal. I don't know how you grew up. I grew up in in Ohio. Um, Sometime around 5.30 or so, our family would gather around what? The kitchen table. We'd have a meal. The food would get set on the table. We'd talk to each other. It was a time of intimate communion. And, you know, when I was a teenager, maybe it wasn't so intimate. How was your day? Great. What'd you do? went to school. Anything happened? No. Okay, but there was something special about that. I remember it. I remember it as a time of the family coming together. You see, that's what happens when we come together. It's the family coming together. It's like the family meal. The most important discussions we ever have, if you stop and think about it, usually occur around the dinner table. It might not be dinner time, but you know when the family sits down at the kitchen table, there's something that we need to listen to. There's something we need to pay attention to. Communion with Christ is like that. We need to give him undivided attention. We need to understand that there's something fabulous and intimate about a meal. The scripture says that he will give us a seat at the table of our enemies. What could be more of a blessing than to sit down and have a meal with your enemy? You know why? you got to put away your sword. You've got to put away your shield. you got to become Transparent. You've got to become vulnerable. You've got to open your mouth and shove food in it while you're talking to each other. It, it's an incredible experience, and if you think about it, nothing could be more edifying than sitting down with a group of people and sharing a meal. See, that's what we do because we have this incredible union with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When we come together, we commune with him at that level that we share with each other when all of our vulnerabilities are exposed. As good as that is, we need to understand number five, the communion with Christ is hindered by our sin. Now, let me be very careful about this and very clear. The union with Christ is not broken by our sin. If we're saved, if we've been regenerated, we have that new life, if we have that desire to be closer to Jesus Christ, that union cannot be broken, but it can be hampered. And that's what our sin does. If you stop to think about it, for two married people, I I know most of you never really have any tension in your married relationships. And just think about this for a second. Because when that tension does arise, okay, um, it's awkward. It's hard. It's difficult to address it. But that tension is never meant to dissolve the marriage relationship. We're supposed to work through that. We don't always work through it real well. I mean, none of us are perfect at this. But that's what sin does to our relationship with Christ. Our marriage to him is secure. More secure than any worldly marriage we would ever have. But our union with him is permanent. It's eternal. But we can hinder that union. We can hinder that communion with him by sin. Jesus says that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That sounds great until we start thinking about what it means. If we love him, we'll obey him. If we love him, we won't consciously disobey him. We won't consciously offend him. And the reason we don't want to consciously offend him is because it hinders that intimate relationship we have with him. It doesn't break it, but it makes it harder. It makes it more difficult. It makes it more awkward. And you know what happens if you don't take care of that type of thing. Over time, it begins to build and build and build. And eventually becomes a wall between you. And it seems impossible to overcome. So we're supposed to confess these things. We're supposed to repent these things. We're supposed to deal with these things as they come up. And so we have to do what Paul tells us to do in Romans chapter 6. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He said, you have to consider yourselves dead to skin. He said, you have to think about this. You have to carefully consider what you're going to do when that voice inside you says, Violate the commandment. Okay, now let's talk about how we violate that because most frequently it happens when we get angry with someone. And I've got to be honest with you. It's easy to get angry. It's easy to hold on to that anger. And especially if we're right. Have you ever been hurt by somebody and you have validly been hurt? And, and, and you hold on to that. And, you know, I, I think it's hard for us to understand at times that the bitterness we have over the hurts that we've experienced doesn't hurt the person we're mad at. It hurts us. Because Christ says, be angry, yet do not sin. Yeah, I know you're going to get angry. Don't hold on to it. Don't allow the sun to go down on your anger. So when we hold on to it, we hinder our relationship with Christ, not our relationship with the person that hurt us. And if you've ever been in that situation, you've seen it happen. They've done something to hurt you. You're offended. You don't let go of it. And they're just kind of going along their merry way and having a good time. Maybe God's blessing them and everything. And you're going, why is this happening? It never occurs to us because we're right, because we've validly been hurt. It never occurs to us that we need to repent of our anger. You know, and I've told you this before. My prayer has always been, Lord, forgive him. Smite him if you can. I'd like to see some lightning come down and turn him into a cinder block, and and then I'll feel vindicated. I'll feel right. I'll know you're on my side, God. Just, Just forgive him, but hurt him. He hurt me. And what God is after is not to smite him because of my pain, but to restore his relationship with me through my repentance. See, and and that's our next point because sin hinders our relationship with God. He's given us a a tool to deal with all that so that we're not just totally hopeless. Our point number six is communion with Christ is re-energized through our repentance. Now, when we sincerely, contritely, ask for forgiveness for something we've done that we're not supposed to do, God is faithful and true to forgive us and to restore us. 1 John chapter 1 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a tool we have to get back into a closer relationship, to get into deeper communion with our Lord and Savior. Now, I'm I'm not talking about the initial repentance that brings us into salvation. that comes along with salvation. I'm not talking about that initial confession that brings us into union with Christ. But this is repentance of the sin that we understand. That we understand that our ongoing sin, our ongoing iniquities, and how they hinder our communion with Christ, and that we want to relieve ourselves of that. We want that burden removed from us. So with heavy hearts and with grieving sorrow, we, we repent and we ask to be restored to a right relationship with our Father, and that comes through our confession. Now, we know this because it's in the Word of God. And the seventh point we have is that communion with Christ is grounded in our commitment to the Word of God. So we're we're called to love God. We'll get to that in just a minute. But we really can't love a God that we don't know. So how do we know? Him? Well, you know, there was a book that came out in the 80s. One of those books that just kind of caught the church by storm called Experiencing God. Anybody seen it? Many of us. It's a great book. But it was about experiencing God. And we need to think about that for a second because we can be fooled into thinking that our experience is authentic and tells us something about God that it may or may not. The only way that we can know about God is through his self-revelation, which appears in his, his book in the Bible. God reveals himself through his word. Think about it for a second. How would we know who Christ is without the Bible? Here's what the Bible says about This is just some of the things the Bible says of Christ. He's the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God. He is Emmanuel. He is our Bridegroom. He is the Great I Am. He is our Redeemer. He is our Good Shepherd. He is our Propitiation for Sin. Now that's a big word that means that he took our place. He took our sin upon himself he paid for our sin, and he is our great high priest. Now, if I've read the whole Bible, I know what the great high priest is talking about, because there was a high priest in Judah, in Judaism. The the high priest, his job was to go into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people, and he would go in there and repent and pray for the sins of the people after the sacrifice was made. Well, Jesus is the great high priest. He's the high priest of all high priests. Jesus, and we talked, uh, Pastor Scott talked about the ascension, the physical rising of Jesus into, into God's presence in heaven, okay? That's Jesus Christ, our great high priest, entering into the holy of holies, and watch this. Because those of us who confess him as Lord and Savior are in union with Christ, we're there with him. I might not feel that way today, but the word of God tells me I'm with him. And that's assured. See, that's why we can be assured of our salvation. That's why we can be assured of our place in heaven. Jesus is already there and he's got us with him. There will come a time when that manifests itself in a glorious way in our lives. It's not today, but that's what the Word of God tells me. How could I know that if I wasn't reading the Word of God? If I was going by my experience, I'd have to go about how I feel about God today. You ever had one of those days you didn't feel so good about God? I've had them. If I, if I, determine my spiritual life, my walk, my eternal destiny on how I felt, I'd be in trouble. So I've got to rely on what the Word of God tells me. That's why my communion with my Father in Heaven, with my communion with Jesus Christ has to be based on the Word. We can't know who He is without reading the Word and growing in our understanding of Christ and growing in our fellowship with Him. Now, We've got real-world experience with this, because you know how this works. When I first started dating Kelly, and I, I remember, I'd, you know, I'd be at home getting ready to go pick her up at her house, and I'd get myself all dressed up, comb with little hair I had. And on the way over to her house, there would be this, this anticipation. Heart would beat a little bit faster, you know, smile on my face. And I'd get to her house, and You know, we'd we'd get in the car, we'd we'd go out, we'd have something to eat, we'd go to a movie, do something like that. But my time with her was precious, and the experience was filled with joy. And I I so anticipated looking forward to that time that I regretted having to take her home at the end of the night. And as soon as I dropped her off and pulled out of the driveway, my thoughts went to, well, when is the next time I'm going to see her? So that's how our relationship with Christ is. There should be a holy anticipation for the time that we spend with him in his word where he reveals himself. And there should be a tickling in our heart and a movement in our spirit that draws us closer to him, that makes us eager to experience that again. Now that's an experience based on the word of God, not necessarily on how we always feel. So that time with him is precious. The time with him is intimate that time with him draws us closer to him and makes us eager for more. Now, if all that's working, if, if we understand all that, then we take a look at number eight and we find out that communion with Christ is made evident through our love and service to others. And again, we find a foundation for this in the Word. In John 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as i have loved you you also are to love one another and now he calls us to love one another because that's a reflection of how he loves us but look at this he calls us to love one another for a very specific reason it is by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another and so later on jesus says that loving god and loving your neighbor are comprise everything that the Bible has to tell us. If we wanted to boil the Bible down to two guidelines for our life, it would be love God and love your neighbor. And to put it another way, no one can love God and fellowship with Christ without having some love for others. So our true love, our devotion, and our service to others are an authentic demonstration Of the communion that we have with Christ our communion with Christ should manifest itself in how we relate to the people around us see this is why these bags are important this is why the love adopt a neighbor program is vital to us this is why we go down to the park it's why we go out into the city and hand out water, because we want the world to see that we have communion and union with our Lord and Savior, and that it's available to them, and it overflows from us into our relationship with them. And the same should go with our relationship with each other in here. I mean, that was the first verse that we looked at. If we love one another, then we're demonstrating the love of Christ. So, yeah, and in our relationships here, there can be a little tension from time to time. Amen? I mean, I can't tell you how many people come to church and they've been here for three or four weeks and go, I want to be part of this church, man. I can see everybody loves each other. And I'm like, give it another week. Okay, because sometimes there can be a little bit of tenseness between us. It's okay. It's how a relationship works. If we have our eyes on Christ, if we understand what we're called to do, it's just like those intimate personal relationships we have. We know that Jesus Christ will get us through the tenseness that Jesus Christ is the resolution. Our love for him and our love for the person that we're struggling with will get us through that hard time. It doesn't have to end the relationship. It doesn't have to end in animosity. It shouldn't end in bitterness. If it is, listen carefully. If we find ourselves bitter over that, it's our problem, not theirs. We go back to what I was saying earlier. We need to repent of the bitterness. need to repent of the anger. We need to humble ourselves and serve and love the people around us regardless of whether or not there might be a little bit of friction every now and then. See, that's when the world begins to look at us and go, how did you do that? Boy, if somebody did something like that to me, I wouldn't put up with it. Yeah, I did that to Jesus and he put up with it. I guess if I want to be a reflection of who he is, then I should do the same thing. These things aren't easy. This is not painting a smiley face, a Christian face on all of our troubles, but it's a way to work through them. It's a way to validate the fact that Christ is among us. It's a way to validate the fact that Christ is in us. It's a way to validate that we're one. We're one body, many members, one body. As we understand that, we took it, take a look at number nine, that communion with Christ can be tested through persecution and, and suffering. Can we love <laughs> through trials and hardship? And every authentic believer is going to run into some hardship. It's a matter of how we handle it, okay? Uh, Jesus says in John 15, remember the word that I say to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Okay? So, he's talking about the world looking at us and pointing a finger at us. It can happen a number of different ways. We can actually suffer persecution for the sake of the gospel. That can happen. I'm going to tell you, we're coming to a day where you might lose your job because you're a Christian. We're coming to a day that you might be denied service because you align with Jesus Christ. Okay, that's persecution. We're not experiencing that right now. But we also have to understand that the trials and hardship can come within. And what do we do about these? Okay, we're surprised by them. We get blindsided by them. I, I thought Scott liked me and he said that nasty thing about me last week. Now, I'm not going to like him back. Well, what am I supposed to do with that? Peter addresses it. He didn't say a nasty thing about me last year, Did you? Yeah, <laughs> you have to think about it. Yes. Peter reminds us, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. It's God saying through Peter, Why are you surprised at this? Why are you surprised that you're having a hard time? Why are you surprised at their trials? I told you they would happen. I've given you the equipment you need to handle them. I've given you all the tools you need. And by the way, the equipment and the tools are not about the person who's causing the trial. They're about you and your relationship with me. And the way you're handling that can either cause our relationship to go deeper or it can cause it to hinder the relationship. Do what I told you to do. Have some love. Have some compassion. Exhibit some grace. Exhibit mercy. That's what I did with you, God would say. I've given you all those things, and I expect you to model our relationship and your relationship with the people around you. It's incredible. So we can, we can have a hard heart. We can complain. We can grumble. We can look up and go, why me, God? I mean, David did that, didn't he? I mean, didn't David write a number of songs when he was mad at God, shaking his fist? I don't know why you're doing this. Don't you know who, I mean, David, which is going on and on. But if you look at those Psalms, David expressed his anger, but by the end of the Psalm, he throws up his hands and he says, but you are God, and I am not. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. So he he recognizes who God is, and he recognizes that there are situations in life that are hard. They're difficult to deal with, and maybe we don't always handle them real well. But when we put our faith and trust in God, God will restore your relationship with him. The peace that goes beyond understanding will invade your heart and invade your life, and you'll be able to handle the situation. And the great thing about that is when we submit ourselves to what he tells us to do, our communion with him becomes more intimate. We're drawn closer to him. That's about those times that you lay your head on your pillow at night and the Spirit whispers to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Considering that, number 10, our communion with Christ can be strengthened through consistent prayer, an attitude of prayer all day long. I'm not talking about kneeling down beside your bed all day long. I'm talking about constant communion, with the Lord, through the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about when that moment comes that somebody says something or does something, rather than saying something or reacting, you take a breath and say, help me, Lord. Help me through this moment. And when we find out that when we take that pause, when we're willing to consider what the Word of God says about this situation, that our communion with him goes deeper and we have more strength and more resolve to do the things that he calls us to do. That prayer is communicating with God. (laughs) You think about that? That your prayer is communication with the creator of the universe, the one who spoke all of this into existence. You can talk to him, and he's given you his spirit to speak back to you, to counsel you, to guide you, to direct you, to give you conviction, to give you comfort to meet you at your point of need. It's an incredible privilege. God's given us prayer to strengthen our communion with him. So we should be striving to walk in an attitude of prayer. Striving to turn to him in those moments when we don't know what to do. When we pray, we feel more connected. So that kind of starts bringing us back to the beginning with our communion with Christ is a covenant of grace that union we have with him that deep uh, intimate communication we have with him uh, is is an expression of his grace he said at the, the last supper this goes beyond the last supper He said this cup is poured out for you as a new covenant in my blood so what was that covenant that covenant was we receive grace and we obey him. God's part is to shed his unmerited favor upon us. And our part is not out of some sense of duty, not out of sense, some sense of obligation, to obey him, to obey him out of a sense of thankfulness and gratefulness for the grace that we receive. We know we haven't earned it. We know that we're not worthy of it. We know that the grace comes to us because of who God is, not because of who we are. And because we've received it so freely, we're thankful for it. And number 12, our communion is the source of Christian hope. The fact that we can talk to the creator, the fact that we've been given this prayer, the fact that we've been given the tools, redemption, uh, confession, uh, to renew that relationship with him uh, is all a matter of, of grace and gives us hope. Where do we get the hope from? Well, 1 Corinthians 11, um, Paul says of the sacrament, but again it goes beyond the sacrament, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The fact that we have this spirit in us, the fact that we, we have a draw to do the right thing, gives us hope and faith in that promise that regardless of what we're going through today, there's going to come a day when Christ comes back and takes us home. And when we get there, what we will experience here will cause everything here to just pale in comparison. To the joy that we've received. That's what Paul says. This is all garbage compared to the glory to come. So our hope is in the communion we have with Christ. And finally, we understand all that. Then we understand that our communion with Christ is symbolized in a sacrament. Now, theologically, the word sacrament means the, uh, an outward and visible sign of God's inward and spiritual grace, an outward and outside representation of the grace we've received. And that time we spend with the crust of bread and the juice represents all the other 12 points. Now, they're there in your handout, and I suggest you take it and take a look at that this afternoon and understand that this sacrament, which we're about to experience again this week, encompasses everything and says everything we need to know about our communion, our union with Christ. It's not just a sacrament. Uh, it's a fabulous sacrament. Uh, it's a gift to us. But it's not just a sacrament. It's all that the sacrament means. And to get to the bottom line, that guy that fell off the roof on the church in Germany, When his friends picked him up and he walked away, he made a statue of the Lamb. And it's there today. You can go to Germany and see the statue on the top of that roof as a reminder that the Lamb was crushed in order to save the man. And he wanted people to know that there was a bigger story to that, that the Lamb of God was crushed in order to save us. It's just a perfect example of the gift we've been given. So when we, when we look at the sacrament, the reminder of that lamb who gave himself for that, and we look at how, how the sacrament should touch all of our lives and be there every minute of every day. It's just a reminder of how we walk and how we live out the union that we have with Christ. So communion is lived every moment of every day. So let's keep this in mind. I'm going to call the deacons forward. Uh, We'll pass out the bread. We'll take the bread together. Then we'll pass out the juice and we'll take the juice together.